Hey guys, this is Catherine. Sorry it's been so long that I have posted on the podcast. Hopefully that changes very soon. Quarantine has been definitely a struggle for podcasting life. But this is part two of the sourdough episode. I hope you enjoy it. We thought uh, getting to know sourdough was really interesting. Um, So check it out. Hopefully you enjoy. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram. Follow him on his Instagram at notrealart. And he also has a website. So check that out and enjoy. I Googled you. Mm. Um, and Because I know when I podcast That's a scary notion. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, oh shit, what's no. out there? I don't even know. Do you ever Google yourself? <laughs> I, well, no, I don't make a habit of that. Okay. No. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, that's interesting. Yeah. I, I have had my, my uh, wife was once at a meeting, and she went into I, I, I won't mention who it was. I don't even maybe even remember exactly who it was. So some important person, or whatever. And uh, so my wife started asking her questions about, well, you know, what about this? What about? And she said, clearly you didn't Google me. Wow. <laughs> Hashtag bitch. So no, I don't make a habit of Googling yeah. myself because I don't want to be that asshole. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I'm curious, what did you find? Because well, yeah. I was like, I really want to know. I, I know when I podcasted with you, mm. you had done a bunch of research and that was great because you had different questions lined up. And I was like, well, I, I want to know like what your background is. And I know a little bit, but then I was, so I Googled you. And uh, one thing that I was really surprised about that I didn't know is I found your Amazon um, page for your books. Right. And I had no idea that you were a writer <laughs> or that you were a cook. Well, I have a sourdough cookbook, uh-huh. uh, which is part of the reason why my pseudonym on the podcast is Sourdough. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, uh, early on and, you know, three lifetimes ago, uh, I worked a lot in publishing and actually, um, my job, my first job out of high school, uh, literally the day I graduated from high school, I started working at this publishing company and I was just a lowly production assistant in the production department, but that put me on this path, you know, to, um, to graphic design to uh, print production, uh, to copywriting, to marketing, um, and and ultimately to writing because what the company realized was that um, I wasn't a half bad writer, um, but I was maybe even even I was probably more professional and responsible in delivering on deadline, you know, delivering a, a not maybe even a great product but a good product. But on schedule, on budget, on time, you know, and that's super valuable when you can be reliable, yeah. you know, and so I kind of became a, a freelance, uh, right, I know that's kind of a yeah. ridiculous thing to say, but that's the key, reliability. Yeah. Oh, especially in the art community, like yeah, reliability right. is something that's very difficult to come by. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, the flake factor is high in the art world, yeah. and yeah. It, you know, it's sort of this, what is it? Is there an, a direct correlation, right, between genius and, and flakiness, maybe? Yeah, <laughs> you know? so, so I'm clearly not a genius because I'm very reliable. <laughs> um, but, you no, know, so what happened was that led to, you know, kind of freelance writing gigs where they were like, hey, you know, we have this idea for a book. Would you like to write it? So, for example, um, they had these uh, little book. they had this book series called Little Books of Wisdom. And they were just these, you know, kind of pocket-sized books that were sort of gift items. You might find them at the point of sale at a Hallmark store or something. Yeah. And and they were books like, you know, the publishing company specialized in outdoor recreational titles. So it was a lot of camping stuff and and mountaineering stuff, you know, that kind of thing. And so, like for that, for example, they had the Camper's Little Book of Wisdom. They had, you know, Backpacker's Little Book of Wisdom, stuff like that. But then they started spinning off into more niche areas, and they wanted to do Musician's Little Book of Wisdom. Well, um, I had studied music for a long time. I come from a very musical family, and so they said, "Hey, you could probably do this," you know. So I wrote the Musician's Little Book of Wisdom. Um, they wanted to come up with a book. Um, uh, called Salesman's Little Book of Wisdom. And I, you know, 
a lot of writing is about research. You don't necessarily have to be a salesman to write the Salesman's Little Book of Wisdom. You just yeah. need to be, you know, do your research. So I wrote Salesman's Little Book of Wisdom. But in addition to that, um, I wrote Cooking the Sourdough Way. Um, I wrote uh, a bunch of short stories for an anthology. So, yeah, so this kind of, you know, journey in, in publishing uh, was a kind of a big part of my life for a while. And that was a long time ago now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, and it's interesting having done some research on you, how you have really, I feel like you're the type of person who really have lived because you traveled and lived all yes. over the place. Yes. Um, you were in, was it Antarctica? Well, I was in, uh, I was 500 miles south of the Arctic Circle, uh, near the polar bear capital of the world, Churchill, Manitoba. And um, that was also uh, an adventure that came out of this uh, working for this publishing company because it was a um, company focused on outdoor recreation, as I said, camping, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. And so um, one of the owners of the company had uh, done a lot of canoeing uh, in northern Manitoba and had built this cabin up there. And so one summer, uh, July or August of 1989, I was 19. Um, the company took a company trip to the uh, northern Manitoba uh, area and they took a bunch of their authors, right? So th these were PhDs in outdoor recreation. So these are the guys that are writing the textbooks for search and rescue. And it was a sort of dream team of, yeah. of outdoor rec. And so I was this 19-year-old kid, you know, from the suburbs of Chicago who... Um, had never really had a proper camping trip before, you know, like that. Because, I mean, you know, a lot of us kind of maybe grew up hiking or whatever in national parks or maybe in the local KOA or whatever the case might yeah. be. Or maybe you were a Boy Scout. I was not. Um, but this was like a real, the real deal. We chartered a bush plane and it dropped us off in the middle of nowhere. We had to carry rifles because there's bears. You know, you had, we, we flew in, but we canoed out. Uh, 120 miles and um so it really just sort of changed my life like i was kind of the city kid who got this real taste of what a true wilderness adventure is like and this company you know it was a company trip and so i when i came back and you know one of the things that i think i've always been um well it's just my nature like i i'm just always kind of looking for interesting unusual experiences or opportunities and um and you know when you're 19 right you're like looking for how am i going to define my individuality you know yeah. what's going to make me unique in the world you know i don't want to be like everybody else i want to you know i grew up i say outside chicago 40 miles outside chicago i was born in gary indiana you know and i grew up in northwest indiana on lake michigan there so very Midwest and, you know, so you're, um, looking for, at least I was looking for a way out, yeah. <laughs> I was yeah. like looking for something cool yeah. to do. And, you know, uh, I, I probably would have joined the military quite frankly, but I'm deaf in my left ear and I'm, you know, have certain physical challenges that, um, you know, the military doesn't want me. <laughs> and so, uh, so I couldn't, you know, do that. And, you know, some kids, you know, maybe go away to college or backpack through Europe and that's awesome too. Um, but I just had this weird opportunity and, and I said, wait a minute, so I can go live like Grizzly Adams for a year, uh, sign me up. Yeah. And, uh, and so that's how that kind of came to be. But when you're living in the Arctic or subarctic, really, um, hundred, we were 120 miles South, uh, West of the polar bear capital of the world, which is Churchill, Manitoba. And uh, when you're living in the bush like that, um, you know, you have to really fend for yourself. I mean, yes, we hauled in a certain amount of staples, flour, sugar, salt, rice, pasta, that kinds of things. But we hunted for our meat and we fished, you know, we got, you know, the, I say fish. I mean, it was like a joke because you could just throw your yeah. rod in the water, <laughs> yeah. in the water mm. and you catch a fish on demand. You know, yeah. it, was, <laughs> it was kind of, there was no relaxing fishing. Yeah. You were constantly pulling stuff out of the river. So you're saying that area was not overfished? Yeah. <laughs> right. There wasn't a lot of people there fishing? <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. There was, uh, it was, it was no farm fishing going yeah, on. Yeah, I there. heard that was a popular area. Yeah. I must have bad information. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it, it was, uh, the nearest town was 120 miles away and then, uh, and then in the nearest town after that was thousands of miles away. Like yeah. it was just like, you know, so yeah, so the fish were plentiful and it was great. So, but, but, 
Um, because, you know, you're living like that. If you uh, want to eat well, you have to learn to cook well. And uh, yeah. baking uh, bread was um, a big part of that. Um, because then you get things like, oh, I don't know, grilled cheese sandwiches and peanut butter and jelly yeah. and oh, just toast with butter. <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> like, um, but um, living in that kind of remote area as well, you think about, you know, cooking and baking um, in a way that is sustainable, right? So, I mean, I don't mean sustainable all in the class, in the way we think of sustainability now. I mean, you do, yeah. it's part of it, but it's like, how, how can I eat nutritiously in an efficient way for a long time. So, yeah. so sourdough br- uh, starter, we, we all know sourdough bread from San Francisco or mm-hmm. what have you, but actually sourdough starter is a really great staple to have when you're sort of living off the grid like that because as long as you sort of feed the starter with additional flour and, and, and water, because uh, it is a living organism, it needs to eat, it mm-hmm. feeds on itself, um, you can, it's replenishable. Right. I did not know that. At yeah. All. yeah. Fun fact, right? Yeah. Aren't, you, yeah. aren't you glad you had me on the podcast? I yeah. did. <laughs> I am not a cook, so this is all new information. So the, the, the starters, the yeast that makes it rise essentially. That's right. It's the free, so, it's like because you're not going to have yeast, so you yeah, use starter. You, you use the okay. starter, and that's what makes when you bake it, makes it rise and makes huh. just so. Yeah. yeah. For anybody that doesn't know. <laughs> yes. So, yes. Yeah. So that's how it works. And um, so, but with it, with this leavener, because it's leavener, right? So with this leavener, you can make sourdough bread, you can make sourdough pancakes, you can make sourdough muffins, you can make all kinds of different things, sourdough pizza crust, yeah, and you can, you can even make sourdough beer <laughs> if you are so motivated. Um, the point being is that we became very good at this, and um, the publishing company that ended up sponsoring this expedition, you know, because I'd come back from that trip and I told the company, or told the owner of the company, I said, man, that's, that was amazing yeah um and you know i'm <laughs> for better or worse i'm you know always coming up with different ideas and uh my idea at that time was because i could see that they were kind of interested in having somebody go up there for a year and just live and so i just jumped on it and i said hey i said what do you think if uh if, if if i went to the cabin for a year and lived um and they said well we'll sponsor you for um uh, the rights to your photos in your journal and all of that and so uh the owner came up for a visit we've been up there for about six months and uh, we hadn't seen anybody in months and uh he came in and 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 ate some of my sourdough bread and said this is delicious how would you like to write a sourdough cookbook (laughs) i said well i don't have anything but time you know i'm sitting up here you know and uh so i ended up writing cooking the sourdough way which is now in its second edition, and it's on Amazon. But um, this is why they call me Sourdough. So, <laughs> so Sourdough started when you were all the way 19, 19. years old. Yeah. Okay. yeah, I'll be 50 in May. What a, what a crazy... Happy birthday! Yeah, happy birthday. <laughs> what a cool way to like start that journey of finding yourself through this... What an amazing opportunity. It was, was Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, no, it, it really was. And I mean, I, I don't... You know, I, I'm proud to say that we, my buddy and I, um, because I had a, you know, I didn't want to go alone. I yeah. could have, but I'm not that stupid. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but I ended up finding a, a buddy that, because um, I also worked at a, a sort of a, a camping outfitter at the time, a retailer, uh, like an REI oh, yeah. kind of store. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so this kid came in one day and was out, you know, buying gear for a trip to the Grand Tetons. His name was David Scott, and um, he had, he ended up working at the store as well. And he and I became buds, and he was crazy enough to want to join me on this adventure. And so I'm happy to say though that both of us sort of knew that this was one of those like rare, unique, life changing kind of opportunities yeah. that we were excited about taking. And I think um, so. I'm I'm glad that we had that awareness, but e- even still, you don't really understand how it's going to impact you, how it's going to change you. And I think, um, you know, one of the things that made the trip, uh, you know, so impactful and so valuable and so life changing was the fact of, was the fact that we were so isolated. We were totally cut off with no communications, uh, no radio, no mail, uh, no, no plumbing, no electricity. I mean, you know, so, 
the, the, that isolation, that solitude forces, um, you to learn self-reliance, to learn a prudent, you know, learn what it means to be prudent, <laughs> you yeah. know? And, and so, um, so yeah, I mean, if we had been, you know, tethered via, if we were like, if we'd done this today, we'd probably be blogging and yeah. hosting. Yeah. And, every day that your job is more to vlog it than experience to, it. Totally. And yeah. we just were able to sort of experience it yeah. and, and be immersed. Uh, it was an immersive experience. What was the, so you go on this journey for a year, mm. uh, totally isolated. What mm. was the biggest thing that had changed when you got back? What was the biggest <laughs> like, culture shock when you get back from this experience? Because that almost is its own experience in itself. That is such a great question. <laughs> um, but I can, uh, yeah, let me, let me try to answer that. <laughs> so just to give you context. So this was 1991. When we left, uh, which was January of 1991, the Persian Gulf War had just broken out. Okay. Okay. And so um, we left during wartime and not that we were expected on, you know, like I said, I couldn't have joined the military anyway and they yeah. probably wouldn't have drafted me. But, um, you know, so we're leaving in this time of uncertainty. It's like, okay, mm -hmm. what's going on with the war for starters? Then, you know, you're in this vacuum for months, right? So, but then uh, about six months in, so to speak, um, you know, a visit, somebody will show up, you know? And what I mean by that is, because the only way in is through uh, is through by air, you know, okay. like you're just going to fly in. So, so if you if we heard a plane fly by, and I don't mean a jetliner, I mean just like a, a bush plane, because you know they're up there all over, kind of flying around doing stuff. And so you'd hear one a couple times a week, if not more, and you'd think, "Ooh, is that for us? Yeah, you know, maybe that's a visitor. Yeah, yeah, maybe Ooh. that's yeah. somebody's bringing in some whiskey. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, and um, and and in uh, a couple times it was for us. You know, somebody landed and. And, you know, we didn't know who it was. We didn't know, you know, what the deal was. And that happened a couple of times. And each time they would bring in news. Yeah. They would bring in a newspaper or mail or whatever and information, right? And so we would eventually learn over the course of that year uh, very interesting and sometimes ridiculous things. So um, uh, we learned that year, that was the year that um, suddenly... Um, uh, Magic Johnson had announced that he was HIV positive. Yeah. It was like, oh, okay. World's mm -hmm. spinning. Okay. Um, uh, Pee Wee Herman had gotten caught masturbating uh -huh. in an adult theater. Okay. Yeah. That was, uh, that was news, you know, mm -hmm. that we <laughs> heard, you know, oh, by the way, this happened. Oh, yeah. by the way, that happened. And, um, the, but the biggest news was that the Cold War, uh, ended and that the United States had won. Yeah. And the Soviet Union had fallen. And um, so that was epic news to get. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. And um, but then there was um, news that was more personal. So when I left um, to go, my grandmother, my paternal grandmother, who I was incredibly close with, um, was uh, essentially on her uh, deathbed. Um, uh, having, you know, fighting cancer and, and what have you. And, um, and it was pretty clear that she wasn't going to live. If I went, I was not going to see her again. And so I had to have this, you know, really kind of intimate, personal one-on-one -on -one conversation with her and ask her what she thought about me leaving. Because if she wanted me to stay, I might would have yeah. stayed. And, but not surprisingly, she wanted me to go. Of course. And, mm -hmm. um, and so, and I, and, and I, you know, and I, it's interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm not, you know, it's, it's interesting. I don't know that I ever really pondered what I would have done had she wanted me to stay. I guess I would have stayed, but, but it, with the momentum, you know, it's like, cause you, when you, when you're 19 and you're trying to embark on your life, it's yeah. hard to keep anyone for anyone to keep you back. Yeah. Right. So anyway, but she was, she knew all this, right. She's just wiser and, and you know she said no go honey be safe mm -hmm. know that I love you and you know and I just told her I said look I said you know I you know some of the family's mad at me because I'm leaving you know but I said quite frankly I don't I want to remember you alive and we had this very candid frank conversation you know we were just like I said I don't want to see you suffer you know and she said I get that you know and I love mm -hmm. you go be safe so um, I think it was, I should remember this date now, but I think it was like September 19th. Um, we were, 
remember that we'd been there for months because we don't know January of 91 was yeah. September uh, 19th of 91. And I, that particular day was just overcome with anxiety about my grandmother <clears throat> and um, became, you know, kind of emotional and just really kind of distraught. And so I was like writing my journal about her. And then a couple of weeks later, um, we, one of these planes arrived and it was, you know, several friends and actually one of the people on that trip happened to me be my buddy, Dave Scott's, uh, his father flew in. So my buddy's dad, uh, Mr. Scott, uh, was the one who told me my grandmother had passed. And so he gives me all this mail and in the mail, I have a letter from my dad and with the obituary from my grandmother. And I look on the date of her death and it was September 19th. Wow. <clears throat> That's amazing yeah. right? to have that kind of weird connection yeah. where you can't explain it, but obviously you knew something, something going on. was happening. And it's, 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 it's magic. It's, it's, it's love, it's energy, yeah. whatever it is. Right. And, and so, so, so this is how the world is changing for me. And then when I get yeah. back, um, we, we arrived back, uh, January of 1992, uh, January 4th, uh, was it 5th of 1992. And, um, you know, the, what was interesting was that the, the world hadn't changed a whole lot, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> At least it seemed like the same old shit was going on. Yeah. If you know what I mean. Yeah. And so that was kind of disheartening. I was like, okay, I just came back from being the king of my own kingdom. <laughs> yeah. And now you're expecting me to, you know, put on a suit and tie and go to work. Yeah. Um, or go to college or whatever. And we good? Mm -hmm. And um, so um, so I that was a little... Uh, weird. It took yeah. it took about a year. Well, let me put it this way: um, it took a year for me to even give a shit about being back. <laughs> I, yeah, you know. And um, but what was also interesting is that we we were also kind of at that time sort of local celebrities. We sort of you know we made national news. Yeah. Um, we did the college lecture circuit, you know, we published some books, oh, that's cool. oh, yeah. you know, so that we did that whole kind of thing. Um, but <laughs> as I was saying to someone the other day, we, you know, we couldn't really make any money on it because no one actually died and we didn't have to saw our arms off, you yeah. know, to survive. Yeah. We actually yeah. did yeah. pretty well. You competently survived. <laughs> that's not interesting. <laughs> Nobody cares. Not interesting enough to pay. Nobody cares. Yeah. yeah, you're right. <laughs> so, so yeah, so, so it took a while to kind of get, you know, integrated back, yeah. uh, into, into the, mm -hmm. into the routine of conventional life. And, um, and I ended up going back to college and finishing, yeah. but that was the thing too. Cause it was like, well, uh, I was going to, going to Indiana university, um, when I left and, um, I thought I would go back to Bloomington to the, to the main campus when I got back and I went down there to see some friends and I just remember feeling like, these are a bunch of fucking idiots down here, man. Like I just <laughs> like, you know, like they're my friends and I, they're yeah. all my age, but they're all, it, it's just this sort of protected environment that yeah. doesn't feel particularly exciting to me. Yeah. And that's when I decided to move downtown Chicago where I might actually have to, you know, carry a gun and protect myself. <laughs> you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know? I'm, I'm too safe. It's boring. Like, yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Well, somebody said to me, said, well, how is it that you, like you know, living in the middle of nowhere and and living in the middle of a city. And I said, well, it's a, kind of the same thing. Yeah. I said because I, you know, in the, when I'm in the wilderness and something happens, I can scream my head off for help and no one will hear me. When yeah. I'm in the city, something yeah. happens, I scream my my yeah. head off for help. No one helps me. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, they just keep walking. Yeah, right. oh, another guy screaming. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um. And you've traveled all over the place, too. Do you have a favorite place that you've lived? Well, well, my favorite place is always the next place. You know, okay. I just love going to new places. And, um, you know, travel has always been a core value of mine. Um, one of the best things my parents did for me sort of unwittingly was um, 
putting me on a plane uh, at a, as, a, as a young kid. My dad had been stationed at Fort Hood uh, in the Army during Vietnam. Uh, he didn't go to Vietnam. Ultimately, the war ended before he got deployed, but um, he was stationed at Fort Hood in Clean, Texas. So they had developed uh, wonderful friends there. And so when, and when I was born, um, of course, they wanted to go see their friends. So we would hop on a plane and fly down to Texas once a year or whatever. And I just remember loving that adventure. Yeah. Of just getting, going to the airport, getting on this plane and flying someplace new. And so uh, as a result of that, I never um, thought twice about getting in a car or driving somewhere or hopping on a plane or something or a train. And, and so, yeah, so travel's just been um, a huge inspiration for me. And I can't tell people enough you know, go explore and, and yeah. get out there and, and meet your neighbors. So uh, Miss Art World just finished her project on diversity. Yes. At the LA Art Yes, I want to hear oh, yeah. all about that. I'm um, so sorry I missed it. I was oh, out no. of town, but oh my God. Let's, I want to hear it, all about it, it. It was great to kind of do the opposite of travel, but have this diverse group gather in one spot. Mm. It was very interesting. But with your travel experience, what does diversity mean to you? Wow, that's a great question. Um <clears throat> Well, first of all, diversity is, you know, one of those charged words now that don't necessarily mean what it used to mean. Yeah. The, the phrase for me always was variety is the spice of life. Variety is the spice of life, you know. And so I remember as a kid, because I grew up in, you know, an all-white suburb, you know, outside yeah. of Chicago. And, um, but being sort of, I guess, the adventure-seeking type. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't uncommon for me to ditch school, hop on the train and go into the city. And, um, not that anybody out there should ever ditch school. I'm not, uh, <laughs> advocating for yeah. negligence, but, um, it worked for me. Um, and, uh, but I remember going in Chicago and, you know, when I was there, I always felt most alive, um, uh, because of the, of the diversity. Yeah. Right. Um, the different cultures, the different foods, the different skin colors, the different music, the different flavors, scents, um, yeah. dance styles, whatever, right? Mm -hmm. It just was alive and electric. Um, and so for me, diversity was always something that was important to me. Core value just made me feel, it made life more interesting. It made more li life more exciting. It made me feel more alive and more human. So a, a more sourdough-specific question to yes, that yes. is... So you've traveled all the world, and this is what diversity means to you. How does it mean in diversity of food? Oh, well, I'll eat anything that won't eat me. Oh, there you go. You know, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, in <laughs> fact, um, somebody asked me a while back, what's the weirdest thing you've ever eaten? And, you know, I didn't even think this, it was this weird. But, you know, when we were living in the bush, um, we hunted. Uh, we hunted. Mm -hmm. And, you know, quite frankly, the goal was to get a bull moose because then we could get, we could have all of our winter meat yeah. at once versus getting a, a rabbit here, a ptarmigan there, a goose there, yeah. you know, a fish here. A and um, moose are huge. Yeah. We, oh. so, so, so we ended up uh, getting our moose, uh, about a, we estimate about 1,500 pound bull, and we uh, ate its tongue. <clears throat> And, um, uh, but I was a caveat there because we didn't so much eat the tongue as much as we sucked on the tongue because we didn't quite know how to prepare the tongue. Yeah. And when it comes to eating tongue, you better know how to cook it yeah. and prepare it, you know? And so the, the sad part was that the flavor was amazing. Like the mm. flavor of the meat of the tongue was incredible. It was just like rubber. And so we couldn't actually chew it. So we just were like sucking so on it. Getting the taste and like, ah, oh, this is good. Right. But it was really good. Yeah. So maybe that's the weirdest thing I've ever eaten. But I, I will pretty much try anything. anything. Uh, but I haven't, you know, I, I haven't been on Fear Factor. Nobody's put a, a, a bowl of uh, live leeches in front yeah. of me. So I, I might, I might, that might be a bridge too far. Yeah. I don't know. Mm -hmm. What does diversity mean for you guys? Uh, I think for me, diversity is... Uh, it, it's it's that diversity and experience. Uh, and I think, you know, the more experiences you have, the more you've truly lived. Yes. And I think a lot of people experience the same thing every day and they're missing out on a lot of life. That's uh, right. And so I think that's what diversity has come to mean for me. Is it's experiences and you need to experience more 
to live or you're you're not doing yourself uh, justice. Hundred percent. Yeah. Hundred percent. Well, Miss Our World, what about yeah. you? Well, one thing that I learned from this project, because I interviewed like 85 different people, and some people were saying, hey, look, we're all the same, which makes us, um, you know, like, you're African American, I'm white, but we're all the same, so we're all unique, and then some people would say that we're all different, Mm. and that what makes diversity, and so they were saying the complete opposites, Mm -hmm. but trying to say the same thing yeah which i thought was interesting but i think for me diversity just means a and it sounds generic or i don't know fluffy but like a variety of of all different things yeah so different experiences different viewpoints different people (laughs) and i love living in new york because you just you meet people from all over the place yep but i think a lot of us and people that I interviewed said, oh, well, diversity is really important. You have to have diversity in your food and your music. But for me, it's really about the people. You have to have the diversity in your social group yes. to then understand why the food is important, why the music's important, why the art is important. You yes. can enjoy Mexican food, but if you don't have anyone from Mexico telling yeah. you about why yeah. they're cooking this way, then you're not really experiencing diversity. You're just enjoying yeah. a taco. So I think it's having the diversity and seeking out diversity within your social group is really important. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's also, I mean, we, you know, the, 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 I think what you're getting at, right, is this idea that, you know, diversity is a multidimensional kind of thing, right? And we tend to be kind of simplistic in our thinking of diversity in terms of like, oh, skin color or, yeah. or religion or something. Yeah, protected classes. Yeah, and you know, and, and yet there's also, and, 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 um, and to the extent that we want diversity in our lives or in our communities or what have you, it's becoming harder and harder due to, you know, lack of socioeconomic diversity, right? Yeah. Because you have, you have this huge divide now. We don't have a big middle class anymore. And all these things. And um, so, you know, my daughter, uh, who's adopted, um, is African-American and my wife's African-American. And um, when we adopted my daughter, um, you know, part of the the process of adopting was that they wanted to, um, uh, you know, better understand how our daughter was going to you know, engage in the world and, you know, was she going to be able to know other African-American girls and boys and what have you. And, um, and so we had to speak to that, but it was also like, you know, my, you know, daughter lives in in Encino and on a cul-de-sac, she has a pretty comfortable life. Um, and you know, my wife and I, uh, talk all the time about trying to make sure she understands that two thirds of the rest of the world is just looking for food and water. Yeah. And so that's diversity too, right? Mm-hmm. Understanding, you know, that, you know, not everybody lives with the same amount of privileges, right. That we do in America. Um, and even in America, it's becoming more complicated. Oh yeah. 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 So tell me more about this, uh, about the LA art show. Because I was, I was so sad not to be there. It was a super interesting experience. Um, it was my first time participating as a performance artist in the LA Art Show, yeah. or even in like a fair in sure, that context. Sure. How did that? How did it come about? So I um, am a member of Gallery Eight Two Five, which is a nonprofit mm-hmm. uh, gallery in LA. Yes, um, and I like working with them because they're not a commercial gallery, right. so they're not concerned with well, we'll bring you in for a performance, but then how are you making us money type of thing? They're like, let's showcase your work and not worry about them making money. So I've been able (laughs) to do a lot of different performances for them over the past three years. Um, And so they put out a call for their membership. Mm -hmm. They're looking for a performance artist to do something on diversity. And I did not apply because I'm a white blonde woman. Okay. And I was like, well, what, what do I have to say about diversity? Sure, sure. So uh, the gallery director called me and said, hey, you didn't apply. We want you to apply. Figure out something you want to do. So then I was like, all right, well, I have to <laughs> yeah. come up with a, sure. an idea. Oh, uh, now I got it. And that's yeah. when I was like, well, I, 
I need other people to help me with this message. Mm -hmm. So I my goal at first was 30 people. Mm -hmm. And then when I realized as I was interviewing up to 30 people, I'm like, that's just not enough. Yeah. Like it's not enough voices. Right. So, um, well, we had talked about it or when she was trying to put together that proposal. And one of the biggest challenges was all of her performances up to that point had really centered around her experiences. And she was sharing that through her performance and her, you know, her experience to the world and, and trying to convey that through art. And she felt that she needed other people to do that now. And it was a, a big leap to be like, well, I need to ask other people to perform and really, you know, uh, strangers, people that I don't know. Because right. she's had other people help with some of her performances, mm -hmm. but they've mostly been family or friends yeah. or, or people that we trust. And now hey, we need to go get strangers to show up and, you know, uh, interview and and can we rely on them to yeah. show up to the LA Art Show even. Yeah. Uh, that was one of the, the biggest challenges even on deciding what to do for the project. Mm -hmm. um, what was your inspiration? So they really wanted to focus on LA's diversity. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to look at LA as like what people think of LA. Mm -hmm. So it's the fashion yeah. and the, the runways. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And, but I wanted to bring that element and put it into the lives of people who aren't in that yes, same industry yes, and yes. give them that opportunity yes. to walk a runway and yep. not wear a designer's outfit, but wear what they wanted to wear. Yep. Um, so they, they would walk the runway and then their interview would play as they were walking the runway right. and they would wear whatever they wanted. And I had some artists who did it more as a performance, mm -hmm. And then some just regular people that were uh, in a suit and just walking the runway. So yeah. it was just a huge different variety <laughs> yeah. of how people express themselves. Showed up, yeah. Mm -hmm. I did learn that not everyone's comfortable walking the runway. So I said, I gave, it was really hard to cut their interviews down. Mm -hmm. I said, okay, it's 30 to 40 seconds. And everyone thinks that that's like yeah, right. so quick. I said, practice walking <laughs> for 30 seconds. Yeah. Right, right. Pace yourself. <laughs> Most yeah. people got out there, ran down the runway, ran back, <laughs> yeah. and ran off. And then yeah. their interview was still was playing, playing. Oh, for 25 minutes. Seconds. But you know what? Like, that's that's the beauty, right? Yeah. That's oh, the, yeah. That's the art, right? Yeah. Like, that's, mm -hmm. yeah. They're not professional right, models. Right. They're just. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. It's the LA Art Show, so artists get what's going on. Yeah. So there is definitely more of an interest from artists to perform and show up. And when you got an artist out there that, that kind of got the concept a little better, it was hard because you'd almost have to kick them off, you know, because <laughs> right. they're out there just like, woo, loving it. You know? it up. Yeah. yeah, totally, you know, just every photo, let's get as many as we can. Yeah, uh, yeah. And then, you know, one of my friends is, a, you know, he's an employment lawyer. Uh, and he's just like, oh, whoop, what, 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 done, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, like, yeah. Uh, this is not my scene. Right, right, right. But, uh, I, I have to get to court. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, um, that's, that's so yeah. cool. Well, you know, it's, um, I moved to LA in 2001 and being from the Midwest, being from Chicago, um, you know, LA, in, I, I admit, had a bad rap in my mind, oh, yeah. right? Because... I always, I always loved San Francisco. I loved San Diego. If I moved to California, I always assumed I'd move to Northern California. And when I ended up falling in love with a woman in LA, I thought, <laughs> oh shit. Looks <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like, looks like uh, I'm going to LA. Um, and so quite frankly, I came here with a bit of a chip on my shoulder. Um, and you know the, the reality is Hollywood casts such a big shadow yeah. that it, it, people forget that LA is one of the most culturally diverse, rich places. And yes, there are assholes in LA, but guess what? There are assholes everywhere. Yeah. And the people you meet every day going about your normal life at the bank, at the DMV, at the hair salon, at whatever grocery store, those are the Angelinos that grew up here. Yeah. You know, because that myth about no one ever grew up in L.A. Well, that's about Hollywood. Those are those people yeah. who came here, you know, to be famous or whatever. And um, and but yet when you discover the cultural richness of a place like, you know, K-Town or 
or, or um, you know, uh, Inglewood or uh, downtown, you know, even you yeah. know, East LA. Like, I mean, it's just like, wow, you just landed on another planet. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. It's uh, LA has so much more to offer than people give it credit for. Uh, yeah. I, I appreciate being here. Yeah. Being raised here and, you know, living here has been a, it's been a uh, plethora of experiences. Yes. Uh, which is great. Yes. And you get California. Yeah, right? Yeah, the weather ain't that bad. We live in yeah. California. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you about. Mm. So I I know from reading about you why you are deaf in yes. one ear. Yes, Um Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So Tyler's actually blind out of one eye, and mm-hmm. I have my vision problem. Yeah. So I'm I'm very interested in people who have kind of a physical sure, sure. element that they... They're grappling with. And, yeah. But still are so successful mm. in what they're doing. Like they don't let, hey, I'm deaf or hey, I'm blind, stop them from doing things. Right, right. Yeah. Um, well, <laughs> so, you know, being deaf... Um, well, first of all, I wasn't born deaf. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had uh, spinal meningitis when I was uh, about 14 months old. And, um, I was a pretty sick kid actually, um, uh, you know, as a baby, uh, and then, uh, I had, uh, veneers, well, I had spinal meningitis, which damn near killed me. Um, but I was lucky enough to get out alive, um, with only being deaf in my left ear. Cause usually it takes both. If it doesn't kill you, it's either taking both ears or both eyes or both legs or whatever. And I got lucky to just lose the one ear and not both ears, although there's some hearing loss in the right ear. Um, then I had Meniere's disease. And then when I was like the youngest documented case with Meniere's disease, because it's like really only hits senior citizens usually, not, not babies. What is Meniere's disease? What, what is it? Yeah. It's, a, it's a sort of an inner ear uh, thing okay. and it attacks your equilibrium. So I, um, and when I, well, you just, you can't walk. Okay. You, your balance is off. And my balance is to this day not right. And I would have these huge spinning incidences like where the rooms would just spin and I would have to lay down and wait for the spinning to stop. Um, but then, then I started getting pneumonia. So like I got pneumonia like every year for 10 years. So up until I was 10, you know, I was a pretty sick kid. And then, um, and then at 10, so something happened and I just sort of, you know, you haven't, you know, you know, say for the few hangovers, um, I've been pretty good <laughs> anyway. So, um, so yes, yeah, so being deaf, um, my parents didn't realize And one, one of the things that's interesting about, you know, when you're a baby like that, where you can't really talk, you can't say, Oh, I can't hear you. Yeah. So even my, and the doctors told my parents, well, we're not really going to know exactly because he's such a, he's so young, like, you know, the baby, you're not going to really know because it attacks your nervous system attacks, you know, so, uh, it was a little unclear how the uh, how the disease had impacted me. So as I got older and say, you know, the phone would ring and grandma would be on the phone and they'd want me to talk to grandma on the phone and they'd put the phone in my left ear and I would like take it and put it on my right ear. Mm. So they started, oh, okay. Well, yeah. So they took me in and oh yeah, his you know, left ear doesn't work. So coming up into, into school, like coming in elementary school, like first day of school, I'd always have to go to the teacher and say, I need to sit on the left side of the class and kind of in the front because of my ear. Um, and you know, it's interesting because, um, I just never thought of it as a problem yet. I've managed around it my whole life. And so it clearly has been a problem because I've had to work around it, Yeah, but I've never felt, I don't know, angry about it necessarily. Mm -hmm. Um, it's interesting though, the older I've gotten, the more I've appreciated how it has slowed me down. Yeah. You know, because um, even now, uh, I mean, we're just sitting here in the room and I'm having to position myself. If you notice, like I've got my body yeah. turned a little bit, I, you know, want the sound to come towards my right ear. So I'm always managing. And one of the things I realize is that I'm having to, over over the course of my whole life, right, I'm constantly having to think about where the sound is coming from and what is being said. So I'm actually losing a lot of reaction time and energy in terms of actually having the conversation because I want to first make sure that I understood what was being said. Did I hear that correctly? 
let you know, then I can think about what I think about what was said, right? So it's just there's a little bit of a delay, and um, and so if I'm in a loud room, if I'm in a restaurant or a club or something, and it's a concert or whatever, and it's that much harder. And so I'm, you know, but I find these workarounds. So for example, my friends always tell me like, you know, we'll go somewhere or we'll go to dinner or we'll go to a meeting or we'll go on a road trip. And I always insist on driving. And they, they always say, yeah, why do you, you know, we'll drive. Yeah. I, you know, I, I say, no, no, no. I insist on, well, why? well, because it's a power position for me because being in the driver's seat, everybody is to my right. Yeah. Versus if I'm in the passenger seat and, the, and everyone's on my left and the music's on, I can't fucking hear yeah, it. Like, nothing. I don't know what's being, you know, so, so, um, and, and, and of course, I think it's getting worse. The hearing's getting worse o- over time. Um, I probably haven't, you know, probably going to those Metallica concerts, sitting in the, you know, yeah. front will probably didn't help me. But, uh, but you know, so it's 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 fascinating. I mean, um, I wonder what could have been. I wonder what might have been. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, somehow, it's all worked out just fine. You mm-hmm. know, I, I you know I, I tend to be very. <laughs> I'm a, I'm a passionate, charismatic person by nature, so I would probably be loud and obnoxious anyway, <laughs> but, uh, but because of my hearing loss, I'm that much more loud and obnoxious, and yeah. so, um, you like know, that. people, right, and people will say, yeah. Yo, or my buddy, some dear friends will go, hey, you yell, you know, like, yeah. calm down, and, and I just, because I don't hear myself. Yeah. You know, and, he, and in fact, you know, doing the podcast, uh, our podcast, it's been interesting because I realize how much louder I am than yeah. my guests when or you my partner. Back, so yeah. I'm trying to fix, figure out how to fix that in the yeah. in the post or in the mix, so that I'm not blasting people's ears. <laughs> but uh, so I don't know. Thanks for asking. I mean, it's um, it's it's just one of those things that you know. I guess. Objectively, uh, people would say, "Oh, you're handicapped." Uh, should, yeah, sure, but I don't. I've never thought of myself yeah. as handicapped, mm-hmm. and I don't think of it as a handicap. It's just something mm-hmm. that I'm managing. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I feel the same way with my eye. Yeah, uh, but I'm I'm a naturally very competitive person, mm-hmm. and I've sports my whole life. Yeah. Love sports, and it's I. It's been something that's like I've always. It's so much more sweeter to be to beat the person or or have the play that makes it happen. And be like, oh yeah, I'm blind, by the way. Uh, right. And it's like it's pushed me <laughs> yeah. to just be that much better. It's been yes. that thing, like, oh, I can't even see over here. Like, yeah, right, right. You know, I still yeah. kicked your ass. Yeah, you know, uh, come on, get better, kid. Get good. Uh, here, put an eye patch on. Yeah, now. let's see yeah. how you do. Yeah, you want to try surfing at 100 miles an hour? Try it. I dare you. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Well, in that kind of, I mean, I you know, I guess kind of the underlying message here on a certain level is like how we overcompensate yeah. in some ways, right? Yeah. And I think that helps drive you a lot of success because you're just so... And you don't even realize it because it's, I've been blind since birth mm-hmm. uh, out of my left eye. And it's never... I've never felt handicapped. I've never right. felt... It's just this is how it is. Yeah. I've never known any different. Right. But I know that I've worked a little harder. Yes. And I, almost like a chip on my shoulder myself. Yes. I've, I know I've got to put in 110% and then it, it's helped build that just determined nature to go get it. Yes. Uh, so I, I appreciate it uh, for what it is. Always wonder, well, what if I could see it with that eye, though? Yeah. What, you know, what would be different? Man, could I hit 100 and, you know, you know <laughs> right. what could I have done? Have I, is it holding me back? I don't know. But yeah. just I think that, even in the back of the mind, helps drive me more, you know. Right, uh, right. So it's interesting. Uh, and uh, nobody knows, you know, yeah. when you're walking around. Nobody can be like, oh, you're blind? I had no idea. Right. Um, so it's an interesting thing. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, Ms. Arwold, how about you? I mean, as an artist, you're dealing with this uh, disease with your eyes, right? Yeah. So, like, how, how is that for you? I think mine's a little different oh, yeah. because I don't have one good eye. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, both eyes are just bad. Yeah. So, when you're talking about your reaction time, I feel that when I'm looking at people because I will not be able to see people from a certain distance. Mm. And so they will, like, wave or try and react, right. and I just literally can't see right, them. Right, So half of the time, I've, I have had conversations where people literally thought I was, like, a stuck-up right. bitch because they're like, yeah, we tried to wave to you, and you just ignored us. Yeah, like, yeah, I literally right. can't see you. Yeah. 
Or like if I'm talking to someone and they're so far away, I can't see their reaction. Yeah, yeah and they don't know. Yeah, yeah. they have no idea. Um, so it's just interesting. That's why she has problems with personal space. She's just got to get right up there. She's just got to get right up there. Um, uh, excuse me. Uh, I got to touch your face yeah, yeah. a little bit. Oh. Hashtag, hashtag me too. Yeah. 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 Um, but I, in school, like I had large print books mm-hmm. and had, I, well, and I've had teachers that have literally said like you, if you can't see, you can't be an artist. And that has yeah. always been like a mind blowing struggle. I mean, you know, can we uh, revoke their artist license, please? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, so it's it's been a little bit more interesting, and like I'll even at work today, um, I'll be at my computer, and my computer sits here, yeah. um, and every you know I'll have people say it. Oh, you're sitting really close to your computer. You should get some glasses. I'm like, I wish I could, yeah. but yeah, it's like, oh, don't do that. Yeah. Your eyes are gonna go bad. Yeah. I'm looking oh, for my mouth. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I search my whole screen. Um, so it's interesting, but I do think you know you just manage it and work around it. Yeah. And mm-hmm. Can't get hung up on. You know, I wish I had great eyes, and yeah. I yeah. honestly don't think as an artist it makes any difference. Um, because it's just, you know, my work is so conceptual that I think it just adds to a diversity of a a viewpoint. Sure. Yeah, Mm -hmm. absolutely. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, for me, it just, um, makes your art that much more powerful, Mm -hmm. right? When you really understand, right? The, 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 the story behind it or the artist behind it or the art behind it, like it's, it's, um, it's a powerful, beautiful thing. Thank mm-hmm. you. Yeah, yeah. It has served me well when I was doing pageants because I couldn't see any of the judges' faces <laughs> right. or the audience, <laughs> so I was just like, <laughs> or your competitors. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Yeah. Couldn't see anything, so I was not nervous at all. <laughs> it served me well because you married me despite this mug. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that oh joke never goodness. gets old. Yeah, nope. <laughs>